Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What's going on? How are you today? Well, <laughs> I am absolutely thrilled uh, we have a, an interview today. I am beyond excited to welcome Kathy Valentine to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. I feel like you don't even need an introduction, Kathy, but you know her as the basis from the Go-Go's. And we now know her as an author of her memoir, <laughs> which I know we were consuming just we wanted more and more and more, but all I ever wanted is the memoir. It's the recent release memoir by Kathy Valentine. For we have the Gogos. Welcome, well, Kathy. Welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Thank you. And uh, I would just, the only word I would X out is formerly. Uh, the band is still active and has a documentary coming out and had a tour uh, scheduled this summer that we canceled because of. Uh, this pandemic, you know, that just seemed to kind of come out of nowhere. But uh, so, yeah, the only word I would strike is formally. You're right. Very Thank you. Still, still an active go-go, but also many other things. We will happily cross out that formally. It's, it's great that the, the band is back together, right? It's all, yeah. all five of you, right? Still? Yes, yes. Uh, 2018 marked the first shows that I had done with the band in a while. And, and they we came back in a big way with four big nights at the uh, Hollywood Bowl with the L.A. Philharmonic. Uh, the only thing that was wrong with those shows was that Gina Shock, our drummer, had uh, she couldn't she couldn't put it off. She had to have a, a neck surgery. So we had a substitute drummer. So that kind of sucked. But it was still awesome. Then we did all we did spend a year like kind of just talking about doing the documentary, doing the documentary and this summer was going to be a really big summer for the band. So we'll see. It'll all, uh, it'll come back. Everything will come back in a different way, but something will come back. Well, what- I'm assuming the documentary is still going to be released on schedule. Oh, yeah. Now yeah. we're going to be eating it, eating up everything we can get on online, but you're still to the tour will be just postponed. Yeah. The tour will be postponed till, and who knows what anybody's tour is going to look like, you know, I don't, I know as much as anybody else, but, um, the documentary, I don't know. There's not a, a set release date or there is, and I'm not allowed to say you be the judge. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it will be on showtime. There was going to be a theatrical release. So that's a drag because theatrical releases can be fun. You know, there's premieres and we were actually going to have a worldwide theatrical, um, partner that, I don't know what happened to all that because pandemic. I feel like I've spent the whole week with you because that's, I've, I've, I've enjoyed, I mean, it's really a well, <laughs> it's a, well, it's a really well-written memoir. It's, it's crazy. Cause I felt like um, you were, you were really descriptive of uh, your emotions. They were, they felt really raw. I was, that's why I really enjoyed the book is just that you were extremely honest with uh, what was going inside your head. Which is amazing to me in that this was, you know, 40 some odd years ago. Did you keep a diary or what? How how did you go back to those places? And and what was that like? Well, the stuff for my adolescence, which I uh, the book goes from 1970 to 1990. Uh, I like people to know it's not the history of the Go-Go's. It encompasses my adolescence. Uh, finding, getting infatuated with rock and roll, chasing and deter- very determined to um, uh, achieve success in the music business, moving to LA, then, you know, getting in the go-go's, our rise, our uh, really wonderful run of uh, 
four or five years and then what it felt like to lose it all. So um, I did have journals. I did have uh, not every day for years and years, but I had enough to, to give me some stuff. I filled in blanks with a philo facts, like day planners that I wrote down stuff by the day. I would stick my backstage pass in. And if I went to a show on that day, um, I had lots of press. The Go-Go's did tons of press and I had it all. Um, I had the internet was really helpful. And I'm also blessed with a really good memory. I made playlists year by year. What was I listening to? Okay, let's go. I'm 14 years old. It's 1973. What was listen? What was on the radio? What movies were out? I made a playlist for every year mm. and played it while I was writing. And it was amazing how the music could take me just like people say to me all the time. Oh, your music takes me back to this. Well, I think we all have that experience. So each year that I'm writing about, you know, it's like I got, I didn't, number one, I did not write about an experience unless I could remember it really well. There's plenty that happened that did not get written about. But if I had to remember it well, I had to be able to document it to the best of my ability. And I had to feel it. If I couldn't get the feelings onto the page, I knew that I would not have the book that I wanted to write. I wasn't trying to do uh, an, uh, this happened and then this happened and this. I wanted my readers to connect with me. I wanted me as a writer and my reader to be connected for them to know what it felt like, what it felt like, because then I knew that, that I would have that connection. I, cause everyone, not everyone has been in a band that makes it to the number one spot in the country. I wished everyone knew what that felt like, but everyone has known what it feels like to achieve something that you wanted, that you worked for. Everyone knows what it feels like to lose something that you've worked for and, and meant everything. Everyone knows what it feels like to have joy and exhilaration and to have their ego or their pride get in the way of themselves. Everyone has the same feelings. And I wanted to get on the map as a writer. I want to write more books. I want people to accept me. I want credit as a writer. I want to, I want that credibility. So I knew I had to be honest, raw, real, authentic, all of it. It had to be that to to achieve those goals. And I'm from Texas. We don't we don't mess around. We just we just face the hard stuff and do it. Continued noise or a mixture of sound. A state of disturbance, excitement, uproar, thoughts, a loud noise made by people. A clamorous disturbance. A lovely term for a fuss or commotion, usually over something of little or no importance. And I just want to say, I want to make one comment about that. I, I loved, you know, your style, your your matter of fact writing, but with the emotion, but also the fact, and I think you had this at the end, that you were very clear in that these are your memories and that other, you know, band members, other friends of yours could have remembered these incidents differently than you. And I, I really appreciated that acknowledgement because everybody has that, you know, we, you know, this, and I'm sure as you were putting it to paper that. Yes. I mean, I think we've all experienced where you're like talking to your family. Remember that Thanksgiving dinner when Aunt Josie was there and they're like, she wasn't there. What are you talking about? It's like, <laughs> yes. it can drive you crazy, you know, trying to reconcile 
a memory that is so clear and vivid to you and someone else that was there has a different one. And it can, it's enough to be crazy making, but yeah. So everyone knows what that's about. And I did have to make that disclaimer, but uh, to the best of my ability, I documented everything. I mean, I, I made sure I was, I was right. <laughs> yes. Um, can I, well, let me start with the, the, actually the introduction to the book. Um, this yes. is, this is mother's day weekend and you, you dedicate it to your daughter, Audrey, and you have a quote that says, I would trade anything and everything to be your mom. Pennies, sand, leaves, atoms. What's, what are these, what, what are these what items? Where's this from? <laughs> what does that mean? It, to it's, you? So ador- it's so adorable. And I have, I have letters from my daughter that, that go into the same sort of thing. So we just started this thing between us where we used to say, if you took every hair on every animal that ever existed from the start of time and every grain of sand on every beach and every leaf that every, you know, and it would just go on with all these little things. And then we'd say, if you took all of that and it equaled one penny, then I would love you millions and millions of dollars. And if all those millions of dollars were one atom, so it just, it just gets going more and more and more. And over time it got to be so wordy and lengthy that we would just start shortening it to hairs, atoms, uh, sand, whatever we could think of any little minuscule thing that you could just, so I hope that explains it. That's really sweet. I think every parent has a version of that, you know, with with their kids. How old is she now? How old is Audrey now? She's 17. (laughs) <laughs> and she was uh, uh, 14 when I started writing the book. It didn't take four years, but, you know, she's half seven, halfway through 17. She was probably halfway. It took three years to do the book. And I took eight months off because my dad, who readers of the book will know that I had no relationship with whatsoever, very minimal um, contact and very, very zero parenting. Um, my dad came back into my life as I was writing the book. and went through a series of health crises crises, and I was, that's when I got to know my dad. I, I navigated his end of life and medical things for eight months. And I, it was such an intense uh, experience and heartbreaking and heart healing all at the same time. But I, I, I didn't write my book in that whole time because I just wanted to cherish the time I had with him. And I think it's material for a second book. Maybe it's really, it's really sweet. You must have a few more in you. <laughs> I definitely have. About, one. I mean, about your life. I have one more memoir in me, but I would. There's a number of uh, other books I'd like to write: short story collection, uh, a few nonfiction things. So. I intend to be, this is kind of what I want to do. I'll always do music. I'm a, I'm a musician, uh, a working musician, uh, whenever I can get the work. And I've been in bands nonstop for 45 years, which not every 61-year-old woman can say, or maybe even would want to say, But uh, <laughs> um, which is another reason I wanted to write my book. I thought, how many, how many female voices have this story? Not a lot. But... Um, I would very much like writing to be what I do from now on as well. Did you sit your, your 14 year old daughter down and say, I'm going to write this book. It's going to be honest. There are things that maybe we haven't talked about, but now it's going to be out in the open. Did you have, is this okay with you? Did you have like an open discussion with, I imagine based on your relationship with your mom, maybe you, it it might've been open or what, what was the the process like with her? 
I'm a very different mom than my mom was. Very <laughs> I got different. that. Um, I got that. But um, actually, you know, she knew I was writing the memoir. She saw me working. I set up one of the first things I did uh, was set up a space. I read like, you know, when you write, set up your space that you want to do it in. And I like looked around my house. I'm like, I like being in the kitchen. So I just ditched my breakfast area, put a desk in there. And that's where I like to write. So she certainly saw me doing it. But she didn't really know the intent, the um, some of the subject matter. And she was very young when she found out. Uh, she she actually overheard me talking about something, and was quite um, taken aback and was like, "I don't understand. Why would anybody want to do this? Why would somebody want to open their life up to have strangers read about?" And it was really a good question. It was very valid. And and I, you know, we talked then about it and. We talked about, you know, why why it's helpful to, for people to read memoirs, why it can make people realize that even though they've encountered very uh, difficult times, uh, painful times, um, things that in, in encompass shame and regret and remorse and the whole thing, that it gives other people hope that they can still be successful and be loved and have families and good relationships. and and you know, I said, not everybody can or wants to write a memoir, but this is a story that I think I really want to and need to tell. And as the years, you know, there's a very big difference between 14 and 17, a big mm-hmm. difference. And she's a young woman now and very sophisticated and very emotionally um, stable and, and compassionate. And I think, I think, well, I think she is very proud now of, of this book. I was a latchkey of Brandisville In a stone drag, run down a low-rent duplex A baby doll, a knee-high, some dazzled boots And a tomboy ride a stingray all the way to the pool I found another good time girl out to make some fun To be my sidekick fucker Yeah, fuck ups. We were fuck ups in training, both attracted and repelled by each other, like poles in a loser magnetic field. My new friend was off brand, trouble, crazy, up for anything. First came the cigarettes, long roll reds, the box smashed flat in the back pocket and cut off jeans, slit die eye. Then we got drunk together on Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. Did she know? I mean, obviously she knows who you are, but did she, did she, you know, her, her, growing up years her childhood did she really get who you are and what you meant to so many people I mean did she Uh, get the extent of it it was more like fun when she was uh younger because you know she got to come on tour a few times and the band would let her come out and dance on stage and she's always been a dancer so it was more kind of like a fun adventure uh, and then as she started getting a little older, I think she would get more of an idea from, I was just mom, but, you know, teachers or her friends' moms would be like, oh my God, your, your mom is in the Go-Go's. I love the Go-Go's. So I think she started getting an idea uh, as, as she grew up more. But the coolest thing was the show I mentioned at the beginning about the Hollywood Bowl uh, in 2018, that summer, she was, you know, she was 16 and I think being at the Hollywood Bowl and seeing the <laughs> scope of it and the beauty and the the excitement of the fans and being old enough to kind of, I think that, because that was the first time after the set, you know, I saw her after the show and she just looked like 
oh my God. And she just ran over and hugged me. And it was just really, it was really cool because I could tell that it sunk in, really sunk in that this was a, a, a very special thing that she, you know, got to be a part of. Yeah. I so, mean, vicarious. So that reminds me. <laughs> <laughs> so, which leads me to, um, you know, you said that Gina wasn't there, but that became your advantage back in the day when people were, weren't available to play for a show, others had to step in. And that's, uh, that kind of happened for you at the, uh, at the whiskey or no, it wasn't it. Well, when you met Charlotte at the whiskey, yeah, you're right. that's how, that's how I got my gig. The, <laughs> Someone was the, sick. <laughs> yeah. The original band of the, 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 well, the original Go-Go's and the documentary goes really in depth in their history. I think people really will love it. The, I, I thought everyone knew this, but apparently the director was, didn't think everyone knew this and really talked a lot about how the Go-Go's were a very organic band that came from the punk rock scene of Los Angeles. So when I joined, they had had two personnel changes uh, in the time they'd been together. And right at that point, they were apparently kind of having a little inner conflict because some of them, uh, uh, Margo, the original bass player, wanted to be really... I didn't know any of this, by the way. All, let me just say what I knew. What I knew was that, hey, can you fill in our bass player's sick? We've got eight shows at the Whiskey. And I was like, yeah, sign me up. Uh, but apparently, you know, you know, bands are... they. Everyone has different uh, agendas and ideas for how it should sound, where it should go. And it's not uncommon that there's conflict and, and disagreements about direction and things so they were having that when I stepped in there was something about the chemistry and the way it felt and I I was not new I'd been playing in bands for five years I thought I was a seasoned pro you know Mm -hmm. and they had everything I had been looking for because to me they had great songs and they were selling out clubs and I thought this band is even though I have more experience this band is a notch beyond where I've ever gotten you know, in the music world. So uh, I love the songs. I love the the young women. I love the way it felt. And I, I became permanent from there on, you know, and, and um, the, all of the prior members are in our documentary. So it's pretty interesting oh, that's for great. people, I think. To oh. see. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, the, the director got the original drummer, the original bass player, um, a, a, Paula Jean Brown, who joined when Jane quit. I mean, it's it's all there. It's a pretty remarkable document of, of this entire Go-Go story. All right, so we're talking with Kathy Valentine, and we're having a time of our lives, but we're going to have to take a break right now, and we will be back shortly. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. We are mid-talk with Kathy Valentine, with whom we are head over heels in love with. Amazing. What, um, however, first impressions are sometimes wrong because in your book, first of all, you saw the Go-Go's when they were first starting out, weren't that impressed. You saw you met <laughs> Gina uh, for a band, were not impressed, right? Is that correct? Well, when I first saw them, they hadn't been together very long and it was... Um, uh, you know, like I said, I thought I was a very uh, a seasoned pro. I'd even played in England in a band. I had played in London. You know, I had I had been in Texas where, you know, music royalty had given me a lot of support and validation from the fabulous Thunderbirds to Doug Somm. So in my book, I in my version of me, I was like, you know, full on legit and I, when I first saw them, they seemed like they were still starting out. So I, it wasn't that I didn't like them. I, I just thought they were cute and like, oh, good. They got a ways to go. You know, cool. And when I saw them just, I think it was even just a little over a year later, it was like, man, they had come full circle. And a lot of that had to do with getting Gina in the band. And she was like a taskmaster. She's like, we got to work. We got to work. She's still like that. You know, <laughs> you know, everyone else is like, okay, let's get together and rehearse a few times before the tour. And Gina's like, no, we got to do it for a month. You know, not really, but you know, she's a taskmaster <laughs> and it, it, it's, um, it's, it was to the band's benefit and still is to our benefit. You know, even after all this time, we just sound better if we've, played together a bunch of times i think every group friends whether whatever you do in any business or just simply friends needs a taskmaster someone who's always going to keep you on track i think so too it's (laughs) always it's like you take on these little roles don't you (laughs) well and you say you locked in with gina instantly i mean i guess the amazing thing is you were you're a guitar player is that your preferred instrument guitar for a while, I would have said yes, but now I just think of myself as a musician, and um, I—it's—they're just very different jobs. I, I look at playing bass, um, and really, the Go Go's is the only band I've played bass in. I, I usually play guitar, but in that band, it was really about being a supporting player and being that foundation that that kind of 
locked in with the with the drums. I, I always felt like it was a really important part, even though your average listener might not zero in on the bass. I knew that if anyone did zero in, that I wanted it to be something that was impressive, you know. So uh, there was room for a lot of melodic uh, uh, bass lines and hooks. Even there was room for hooks. And again, my my upbringing in Texas. I mean, I I knew what feel was. I I grew up with you know not just rock and roll but blues and R and B and country and I understood you know I understood components of playing and and playing an instrument that were ingrained in me. Like you got to swing sometimes you got to drive sometimes you got to leave space. Sometimes you got to fill up space sometimes. So what makes you the player you are is recognizing when to do those different things and how to do it and what best makes the song, the best song, what makes the other players sound their best. And I was good at all that. That's what made, that's probably the basis of my musicianship. I'm not the most, a technically great musician on anything, but I have really good taste and I know I have good judgment about all those other things. So, and that's a really good lesson that I tell musicians, you know, because a lot of musicians, they think it's just about going as fast and furious as they can. And it's more, then they're, then you're more like an Olympic athlete. Oh, look how fast I can play these runs or these scales. Yay. But what is that going to do for a song like Our Lips Are Sealed? You know, how is <laughs> you playing that fast going to help a great song shine, you know? Yeah. So do you have some, Holly, you want to go? I think my questions are all over the place, but <laughs> okay. I do. I, 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 you, you mentioned something within, within the, the, the support. If you didn't mention it, but you mentioned Doug Som and one of the, you had a couple of themes throughout the book that you talked about. And one of them was the support of male musicians, always the support of male musicians, which I found really, um, at first surprising when you, when you mentioned it. And then I found it really um, comforting because you, you don't really find that in any other business. It's yeah. true. And, and once I saw the pattern, it's not anything I ever thought about until I wrote the book. And as I was writing the book and I was writing about my experiences in Austin and there weren't women to look up to that, you know, the, the, there was one woman, Marsha Ball, who played, piano she was from new orleans mm. fantastic musician <laughs> but most of the other ones were singers and nothing against singers but that's if you're a, a young yeah. guitar player so i was entirely dependent on guys to be to give me praise or encouragement or support or validation so it's nothing i noticed at the time but as i wrote the book i started seeing this pattern and the pattern was that consistently the guys had been and maybe Maybe they wouldn't have been if I wasn't so earnest, you know, maybe it was me, you know, or maybe it's just musicians supporting. I don't know what was at the root of it, but I noticed. And as soon as I noticed it, I thought I'm going to make sure that my readers acknowledge this too, because I, you're right. You, you always hear about sexism and obstacles and, you know, the glass ceiling and, of course, all that stuff. And there, of course, there's a patriarchy. Nobody's going to deny that. Even the guys I know don't deny that that exists. But mm -hmm. I really enjoyed being able to lift up the, the musicians and acknowledge and recognize and show my appreciation for this, the support I got. And I don't know if I would have given up or run off with my tail between my legs if I hadn't gotten it. 
but it's a possibility, you know, it, it can really, you know, one time a producer told me, I wrote about it in my book. He said, you can't sing, you're not a lead singer. You don't sing well enough. And I took that to heart. I believed it. I believed it for a really long time. And it wasn't until 2005 that I thought, I don't care what he said back in 1989. <laughs> I'm going to, or whenever it was, 87. If I want to sing, I'm going to sing. And I did a fine <laughs> job, you know? And it's like, it's like, God, you know, when when someone you looks up to tells you you're not good or you, 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 you're not as good as you need to be, it's, it can really be damaging. So I'm so grateful that I did not hear that. Like, Oh, aren't you? You're, yeah. Little girl, go off and ha 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 play your guitar. Ha ha ha. You'll get nowhere with that, but go have fun. I mean, it would have been devastating. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, pre South by Southwest Austin? What was, what was the, what was it like on sixth street and what, what, uh, what were your impressions of uh, stepping into a club and seeing it? Well, Luckily for me, 6th Street was not 6th Street back then. There wasn't a, 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 what do they call it now, Dirty Six? Yeah. They call it Dirty Six because it's so overrun with, you know, just drunkenness and frats and uh, and just like it's spring break, like constantly. I guess it's kind of like Bourbon Street. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so... Austin had an amazing music scene way before it called itself the live music capital of the world. And what I really liked was the spectrum of music and this place, the Armadillo World Headquarters, where literally one night you'd see Ray Charles, the next night you'd see the Ramones, the next night you'd see Frank Zappa, the next night you'd see the Flying Burrito Brothers. I mean, it was just, and my mom's friend worked there. So I had access. So I went there a lot. I went there with my mom a lot. We liked their nachos. <laughs> so we'd go and, and sit in the beer garden, eat their nachos, and just, we could just wander inside the concert hall. And I saw so, such a wide variety of music. And then in the clubs, I started hitting the clubs when I was a, a, a teenager, 16. And I write about this in my book. I have a chapter called Clubland because I just, music was just, a, it was like my college. It was like, I felt like I was in school and I would go see a rock band. Uh, they might be playing all covers, but I'd time it so I'd get to the, the Bowie covers set. They would do like, okay, here's our <laughs> Bowie set. And the whole set would be nothing but David Bowie songs. And that would be fun. And then go see the fabulous Thunderbirds and then go see, uh, like a, a a troubadour, like somebody like Ray Wiley Hubbard or Jerry Jeff Walker, one of the three named Texas troubadours. Uh, and then you might go see uh, like a, a country honk band or Tejano or it was just so much music. So Austin was a, it was an amazing place to be a teenager. You know, nobody likes to think about aging and stuff, but I, I get a lot of consolation that I got to be a teenager in the seventies and I got to be a young, irresponsible nutball, not grown up in the eighties. So it's like, that's the, the good side of, of, of my particular aging trajectory. Those were two great decades to be a young person. In.
Agree. It, I, think, I think everybody says that. I'm well, sure course, the people that were teenagers in the 50s loved it too, but I'll tell you. <laughs> I agree, but... We've talked what, about that before, about growing up in the 80s. Yeah. Well, yeah that, being a teenager in the 80s was awesome. Actually, one of the most amazing pictures that you have in your book is not a picture of your of you or your family. It's the, the bill of uh, what's playing at the whiskey in 1980. I mean, it's insane. Yes. It was Susie and the Banshees, oh. Susie Quattro... The Plimsolls with the Blasters, Captain Beefheart, the infamous X shows, and of course the Go Go's closing out the the New Year. That's that's insane, that, that right flyer, there. That flyer that's was like dream. my book. I feel like I I feel like that I should just use that flyer as like a uh, what do you call it a one sheet on my book because <laughs> not only did Susie Quattro show me that you know I, I was like strumming my little guitar thinking that the only options were to be you know, Joan Baez, no disrespect. Joan Baez is awesome, but I thought it was folk. That was it. Folk singer or rock star, Janis Joplin, that there was nothing in between. You're either a folk singer or you're a rock star. And then I see Susie Quattro and I'm like, Oh, you can hold an electric guitar and Mm. plug it in an amp and wear platform boots and have a shag haircut, just like the faces. Whoa, mind blown. So there's Susie on there. There's my friends that came up at the same time. Um, you know, uh, we helped introduce the Plimsolls, uh, to some of them together. We were all hanging out at the same places, all trying to make it happen together. There's the X show where I meet Charlotte and she asked me to join. And then there's my shows that are my first all on one flyer. It's amazing. That one. How did you get into the whiskey on that night to see X? I would yeah. imagine that was sold out. What? Did you have connections? What's uh, how tied in were you? Uh, no, I mean, back then all the bands, you know, played the same places, and the you know, so you became friendly with the doorman. So it wasn't you didn't have to be that connected or on a list or anything. If the doorman knew you were a local musician, uh, you know, that they, they would wave you in. So that night it was Christmas night, which isn't the most busy night, you know, of the year, and I. I had had Christmas. My mom had come out to see me in LA and I didn't even have a place to live. I was house sitting and my mom came to stay with me and she went to bed and I was bored and Oh, X is playing. So I just went down the street. I was living right up the street from the strip and, and you know, X was one of my favorite bands. So it was kind of a no brainer. And I, I was always real independent. I mean, I, I was going out by myself all the time. I, I didn't need a girlfriend or a, or a, a posse to go out and, and enjoy a band because I knew I would see people at the club. It was a, it was just a really fun time. I, I, you know, it's fun. I hope that the young people that are going to be, you know, turning eighteen and twenty one in the next year get to do that because I'm sure it still happens. I don't know. I don't, but I'm I'm sure there's rock scenes in every city where young people are doing the same thing. I hope so. I really hope so. What about Audrey? Is she getting out? She doing? Yeah. She's, she's only seventeen, so <laughs> she loves. 
But it'll be fun. I mean, that's what I mean. It's like, I, I hope she gets to, to do that. I mean, I've said to her many times, I was like, you know, it's not too long before you're going to be checking, you know, you're going to be in the clubs. That's the whole big part of growing up. If you're, especially if you're a music lover, which, you know, I think a lot is of us she, are. Is she, is Audrey, does she have the same appreciation for music? Oh yeah. Yeah. She, we turn each other on to music and songs and she's got wonderful taste. There was a little time where I was a little worried and, <laughs> and, um, because I had like raised her on all the stuff I thought was cool. And then she kind of went her own direction and was like top 40 girl for a while. And even then though, I'd be like, okay, that's auto tune. Okay. Find the one. Do you hear the one? Um, <laughs> one of my favorite moments was I played a CD and she was only like seven. And I was like, and, and I was playing the CD in the car and she goes to, that's Jimmy Vaughn playing a shuffle. And I was like, yes. Um, anyway, <laughs> I did my job. <laughs> so, but anyway, she got um, several years ago, you know, she started really getting a wonderful, her own thing, her own taste in music. And it can go from anything from the Strokes to to Kendrick Lamar, to the Kinks, to Tyler, to the create. I mean, it's just like all over the place, 80 songs, 99 left balloons. You know, she just has all these, and she's got these wonderful names for her playlist, like really great <laughs> names. I wish I could think of any offhand, but yeah, we, we share, we love sharing music. And I, I begged her to teach me how to do some hip hop dancing because I'm a horrible dancer and I just, <laughs> she's a great dancer. I'm like, I want to move like that. And is it too late? And I'm like, nah, it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> as long as we have a mirror to practice in front of. Yeah. She's very patient with me. Like, no, no. <laughs> I want to ask you a question. I know we're, we're jumping around, but it, since we're, we're on the topic of your daughter, I want to ask you a question about is There were, as I said, a lot of things that resonated with me. So your experience when you were 12 and I, you know, I know the book is out and we want our listeners to read it and we're, you know, they must read it. It is a must read as far as I'm concerned, but your experience when you were 12 years old, disclosing this to her and your non-traditional upbringing, and I'm assuming she's a little more traditional and just where we are in the world right now with, with young women, how they can't imagine girls being taken advantage of allowing something, you know, to happen to them. This isn't even part of their world. You know, they're, they're, it's, it, I'm sure that she couldn't even imagine that this happened to you. Did she have any? Yeah, she was, she was, well, first of all, she's like, like, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen right. to 12 year old and 12 year olds. And um, what Holly's talking about is that I, the first time I had sex, which I probably shouldn't have had sex, but I was with a 16 year old that didn't care that I was 12 and didn't care uh, about anything. And I was just an unparented, unguided, messed up, lost, confused kid who was probably desperate for any attention. Uh, didn't have my dad in my life. So a textbook, textbook, uh, case really. And so that's the first time I have sex and I get pregnant. So that's how fertile and unlucky I am at 12. And, um, you know, I, that was a really hard thing to write about because, you know, it's one thing to write about it in 1980, but here in 2020, we would have never thought that. But but that constitutional uh, right for a, a woman to choose and determine for herself, even though she's a woman, believe it or not, women should be able to have be able to choose and determine for themselves uh, when 
they are going to become a mother. Well, now that right is in jeopardy. And so I thought it was as difficult as it was. And as um, uh, I'm not going to say it's, I'm not saying, I'm not going to say I'm ashamed. I really don't think I had any option, but I will say it. it, it's like, I know I was opening myself up to some very vehement and vocal anti-abortion people. And I was uncomfortable. I'm not someone that enjoys conflict or enjoys arguments or enjoys having to defend my position. That's not, that's not my way. I admire people that can take all that on. But uh, I just thought it was very important to put a human story and a human face on a topic that's pretty hot button thing these days and things that women have taken for granted uh, for many years are going away. And what makes me the most angry about that is that uh, the people that have money are still going to make those self-determinations. They're still going to get access. They're going to find a way to terminate a pregnancy, the people with money and the poor, the poor are not the poor are the ones that are going to say, I can't even feed my family now. What am I going to do? And they're going to do something that can be, uh, that could kill them basically. So that's what, that's what really bothers me about that. You know, it's not going to stop just like, just like, you know, it's not going to stop abortions from happening. If you take that, that constitutional right away. So. And you, you had to, the fact, it didn't, when I was reading it and that you had to fly to California to get yes. an abortion. Yes, it was it, two years before Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I couldn't, that didn't click at first. And I thought, why is she going to California? And now, you know, we're, we're experiencing it all over again. And I think in Texas, you know, where, where people have to travel long distances to. Long distances. And, 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 you know, and I really get it. I mean, I, I'm a mom. I, I looked at the ultrasound when I got pregnant and I know what, I understand the emotional weight of this issue. I get it. I fell in love from the minute I saw that little tiny dot, but that's the difference. It was, you know, it's love. It's making that choice that I'm going to, I'm going to let my body nurture this little thing. I'm making that choice because I'm sober, because I'm financially secure, because I'm a mature adult. I'm ready for this. I want this. I can do this. I can love this child. I can give this child everything it deserves. And that's that I, I that's what I just want to say. I, I get the emotional wallop of of but because I've been on that side where I, yeah. I go, this is this is but I think ultimately you you have to err on the side of personal self-determination we all get one life and no one has the right to decide for another person how they are going to try to pursue that happiness and that fulfill their their own destiny that's the bottom line and nobody i don't think anybody takes it lightly no it's it's but it's you know it's it's just it's i can't believe where we are anyway we don't want to get too heavy and <laughs> no. uh, so, so uh, okay I, well, I, guess, I see you have a question dave you're no, raising your hand I know. because no. I'm, I'm just wondering i mean <laughs> he's like hello there's a guy here no i i i know when to back off I'm like okay this is <laughs> um but no I, I was wondering because of maybe the way you were treated during your adolescence you always wanted to be in an all girl band do you think that was like I I need I need the sisterhood of a of a group of women 
or, or teenage girls together to, you know, whatever <laughs> it was at the time. This is what I want. I feel strong when I play together with women. Is that, is that how you felt? I, yeah. I mean, I've, I've played in bands with guys too. My first band was two girls and three guys. Um, but I had this longing to belong and I just felt like, I think at the beginning, I felt like as a beginner that guys wouldn't want me in their band, like, you know, and that it would be easier. I mean, there were so many obstacles in, you know, I had to figure out how to get an electric guitar, how to get an amp, how to rehearse, how to find people to play with. And I think it just seemed like it would be, you know, uh, a different sort of thing and maybe more I could grow more more um, unjudged you know because I even though I had the support of, of, of guy musicians I feel like you know I wanted other people to start out and just all the guys I knew were kind of already doing it but um, have, I think I have just always wanted to hang out with like-minded girls and just feel that sisterhood you know mm-hmm. have that sisterhood and uh from a very another thing I realized writing the book, how I just started from, a, from the minute I started playing music, I started this lifelong habit of kind of pulling another gal in with me and kind of, you're my partner, we're doing this together. Right. And I don't even know, I mean, with the exception of Carla, who I started the text tones with, who she'd been playing way before me. But a lot of times I was the one pushing, you know, that, come on, we're doing this, we're doing this. And maybe I was afraid, maybe I felt like, maybe I was afraid of putting just myself out there. And uh, so it's an interesting thing. I've, I've had a female kind of counter, like just kind of partner that I write songs with and that I do it together with pretty much all the way up until making solo record, which I did one in 20. 2005 and the soundtrack to my book is pretty much a solo record so and I really like doing it I thought it was ironic all I ever wanted all I ever wanted was to belong to feel a part of a family to be in a band to make it in the music business and then I go have this fantastic experience all by myself (laughs) writing a book and making a a record so I'm like okay there's a little irony (laughs) Um, we're having a great time with, with Kathy Valentine, but we know your time is precious, as is Kathy's. So we're going to stop it right here and continue next week. So thank you to Kathy Valentine, and we will be back next week on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Don't forget to follow us at uh, on our website at WDDIM Podcast and all the, your favorite social networks. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 